This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree, an ETF sponsor. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. Really, another interesting week in the markets, Professor. We've got Jackson Hole, we've got commentary from Powell, and then we have shots from Trump back to Powell and China. A lot of activity going on, Professor, as we, uh, we end the week here. Yeah, let, let's let's try to uh, separate some of this uh, out. Um, uh, I think what's going on uh, emphasizes the position I took more than two weeks ago that we need a really deep rate cut. We do need a 50 basis point a rate cut. As I'm looking right now, the 10-year is going back down to 150. Um, of course, we have the Dow down 500 points. Now, let's, let's again, we, on, on top of this Dow drop is certainly now the trade war is heating up with the Chinese retaliation, $75 billion worth of goods, you know, soybeans, oil, um, uh, automobiles, uh, et cetera, and so on. Trump now says he's going to make a, a further response this afternoon, and we don't know what that is going to be. Uh, is that going to be, you know, ramping up the war even more? Now, is this ramp up, you know, just, you know, the, the, the chicken part of the final negotiation or not? No one knows for sure. You know, it's always been my feeling is that, you know, Trump can't let this get out of hand because this will completely crater his chances for reelection next year. Um, and uh, so, you know, this, this may be part of you know, the art of the deal, which, you know, he um, uh, has written a book on. Uh, or it just might be, you know, that he's he's willing to, to take the heat, uh, certainly in the, in the short run over here. We really don't. We have really no idea on that. But, uh, you know, these trade fears are really going to dominate um, the market. Um, the, and given interest rates, we need the Fed to be aggressive. So, you know, you know, it's funny, I, as you know, I've always, I mean, I, I think the, the trade stance of, of Trump is, is, is extremely wrong um, and wrong-headed and det- very detrimental. But uh, he is right that the, the Fed needs to move aggressively. Now, let's also, it's very important to know, Powell, and I've, we've talked about this on our show, he stands between two groups at the, in the FOMC. 
uh, one group that says, hey, you know, the economy is not doing that badly. There's no reason to lower rates. And that group that looks at the term structure and said, yeah, but I'm really worried about that. Uh, and this split has been there now for, you know, three, four, five months. It's going to be coming to a head in this September meeting. And I think Bullard, in his statement at Jackson Hole, really was right. He said, you know, there's, there's going to could be a, a battle royale in that meeting like we have not seen before about, you know, how far down should we go. Now, again, that's still, you know, almost a month away, and a lot can still happen between now and then. But standing it is now, you know, there's going to be those that say, hey, I don't think we should change, and those that didn't. So Powell is in a very, very uh, difficult uh, position here. Yeah, it seems like uh, some of the CNBC comments i've seen you had harker come out you had mester come out they seem to be in that camp of not doing anything and then yeah i mean i I mean i you know i know both of them Uh, loretta has been hawkish i'm not surprised um uh, uh, harker came out slightly hawkish you know he's he's willing to wait of course esther george that was a dissent we know he's a bored I'm 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 actually pleased because I was worried that he was getting away from being more aggressive, but he sounded like he's more willing now, really, to to look at a 50 basis point uh, 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 cut. And I mean, this is before what we see today going on in in the markets. Uh, so it is going to be a big battle uh, there. And and you know, one of the inf- and you know Powell. He's a very smart man. I think he's a fine man, but he's not an economist. So he, in a way, it's not like he has an independent position here. He's listening to all these sides. And, you know, there are arguments on both sides. I'm, I, for one, am, you know, very persuaded by the term structure argument. I think you need to lower it. And uh, I think the economy is, is not that strong and could weaken and um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I want to be aggressive here, but you know, clearly, there's arguments on the other side. So he's trying to. He's in a really very, very difficult uh, position here. He, again, we have four weeks of data, and we have four weeks of potential more escalation, or hopefully de-escalation of the trade war, which you know will affect markets. So you know it's very fluid. It's very you know four weeks from now, it's very hard to say you know the Fed is going to do this or that. Right now, um, you know I would say the Fed is going to lower a quarter, um, but there's going to be dissents against even doing that, as there were in the last meeting. No, it's interesting. Uh, we've got Buller scheduled for nine twenty right after the uh, the big Fed meeting to come talk to us, and and it was nice. It was interesting, as you said in the, in the comments. It said our job is to uninvert the curve. That you know he's taking your your exact comments that uh, they can't have this inversion. So it'll be be a very interesting Fed meeting. As, as as you think about you know now the market volatility, the market's dropping. Um, I mean, how with all this uncertainty, does it? Do you start to look past it, or do you say we've got to really get this trade resolution before we can really get a bottom in in what's going on in the equities here? I think here? you do. I mean, uh, I mean, each of this escalation, you know, causes worry. I mean, if there, if we, you know, put twenty five percent tariffs and they retaliate twenty five percent tariffs, you know, uh, the market's down another ten fifteen percent. I mean, this is. Uh, you know, this is this is really negative. It really disturbs the supply chains, the pricing. I mean, China's a real important market for the U.S. Very clearly, um, and uh, I mean, you can see, you know, you can see what's down. I mean, you know, Apple's down four percent today. Um, 
you know, Tesla's down four. You know, they're, they're, they're a big seller in China with, with the potential. You know, in fact, the reimposition of the 25% tariffs that the China has had uh, suspended on the automobiles. You, you, you take a look at that. That you, you see, you know, you see what's, what's going down. Oil has been hit. I mean, they're putting a tariff on oil. They import most of their oil. Um, but, uh, you know, oil is down. The CRB index, which is the Research Bureau index, commodity prices are hitting like a two-year low um, also on there. That, that's one reason why, you know, my feeling is, you know, the Fed just really should. And, 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 and I think this is really – one thing I remember when I, when I was on CNBC over two weeks ago when I said this, I said, if the Fed lowers 50 – it takes the Fed out of the blame game that Trump is playing about why we're in a slowdown. <laughs> um, you know, all right, we got the 50, now it's trade. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think, there's, I think there's economic justification to go down 50, but if you would do that, that takes that picture. Now, you know, you know I mean, Trump is going to blame, you know, Powell, they already did, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, that blame game is going to be on, and then, the, the, you know, the Fed could lower it and take it out of the picture. And I don't think it's inappropriate. I mean, as I say, I think there's really good economic reasons what, looking at that term structure. I mean, 210 I'm looking at Fed funds right now. Actually, 212 is the highest interest rate in the world on what we call safe securities of any maturity of in the developed world. I mean, I'm taking China, all of Europe, and that, I mean it's it's crazy for the most liquid asset in the world, which are Fed funds, basically cash, to have the highest yield around. It should yeah. be below the long-term interest rates, and um, you know that's a major reason why I'm for. Uh, taking from very strong action now. Very good. Any, uh, any closing thoughts or we'll see you, uh, in, yeah, after you know, I think again, yes. Uh, you know, this is going to play back and forth for, uh, for a long time, but I mean, the, the, the market wants a trade resolution and I, Trump recognizes that the market is re- responding negatively and um, my feeling is it's part of a general strategy to come up with some agreement uh, later this year that uh, before we fall off a cliff. <laughs> Very That's good. still my call. Have a good end of the summer, and we'll yeah. talk to you after, uh, after Labor Day. Thank you very much. All right. We're going to bring on our first guest, David Donabedian. He's the Chief Investment Officer of CIBC Private Wealth Management. He oversees the Asset Allocation Committee, looks at the internal investment strategies, manager selection on their platform. Also a Wharton graduate. Always great to bring other Wharton grads on on our Wharton programs here. Uh, David, welcome to our show. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Um, maybe you could kick off a little bit, um, you know, give us your view of the world. How, you know, are you factoring all this uncertainty between the Fed, the trade issues? How are you advising clients to look at their, their asset allocations? Well, you know, today is, is a fascinating day because uh, our view has been that, that Fed policy and trade policy are the two great macro drivers of the financial markets. And today they've, they've kind of crashed into one another, right? We had, uh, uh, Chairman Powell speaking at Jackson Hole, and I think the takeaway there was that he wants more rate cuts and, and that we should expect one on uh, September 18th. Uh, I agree with Professor Siegel that the um, there's going to be a vigorous debate at that FOMC meeting in September, but I, I think uh, I think Powell has the votes, and 
the bulk of the evidence since the last FOMC meeting, I think, really has strengthened the hands of the, the doves, the group that wants to, to cut rates. Clearly, the trade war has, has escalated pretty dramatically uh, here in August. We've seen very poor economic data abroad. The U.S. data has been, has been mixed, but the industrial side of the economy is clearly weakening. And, you know, one of the other interesting points is we've seen very big uh, downward revisions to the employment data over the last year. The uh, you know, Bureau of Labor Statistics went back and basically vaporized uh, half a million jobs that they originally said had, had been added and now saying they're not. And profits data has been revised downward. We've seen the yield curve inversion deepen a little bit. Um, and more financial markets volatility. So the case for a rate cut, I think, is pretty clear. Um, and I think we'll see that on September 18th, probably with uh, messaging that that won't be the last one. And, you know, feeding into that is uh, is the, the, the trade issue. And when talks broke down back in May, we wrote to clients and said that the trade dispute now probably needs to get worse before it gets better. And, and in recent weeks here, we've seen it get worse. Back and forth on tariffs, we're at the point now where they're, the two sides are running out of, uh, uh, of uh, goods to apply new, new, new tariffs on. So um, it is potentially entering a more um, dangerous period, and we're seeing that reflected in, in financial market volatility. So on, on this Fed cut, do you think it's the 25 that sort of the market's basically pricing in now, and, or do you think they will do what Siegel's calling for in the, on the 50? I think it's probably probably 25. I, I would. Uh, I think the odds of, of 50 are are um, rising, but but still not the most likely. Uh, partly because of what I said, there there is going to be some dissent on the other side. There have been some obviously very vocal dissenters, um, and so 25 basis points kind of feels like a uh, like like a compromise. Um, but again, I, I think that uh, Powell will want to leave the door open for more cuts down the road. Now, at CIBC, is your focus, I mean, it's a big uh, Canadian-type firm. Are you focused on the U.S. or, or the Canadian markets in, when, you're, when you're dealing with the private wealth clients? Uh, we're, we're looking at the, at the U.S. markets primarily, but also globally. Our, uh, our uh, portfolios are, are global in nature. Uh, we're, we're working with uh, U.S. clients and, and CIBC Private Wealth Management U.S., but uh, also believe in, in global investing. Yeah. So how do you, given all this uncertainty now, is, is how tactical will you adjust some of your, your outlooks? I mean, is it, uh, are, are you moving between equities and bonds? Are you leaning towards different parts of the, the equity markets? Where's, where's your, your, your baseline and, and how it tilts tactically? Yeah. In a big picture sense, we, we haven't made um, significant tactical moves here. Um, and you know our overarching view for for quite a long period of time has been that that equities will outperform uh, bonds, and that's still our view. Although you know it it is changed to the extent that the the absolute returns on both of those are uh, you know very likely to be lower than they've been in the, in, in the rearview mirror. Within um, equities, we have uh, overweighted the U.S. relative to to global, uh, and continuing with that view. Uh, with it, simply because you know growth fundamentals are are stronger here than in most other parts of the world, within the international equity component of our asset allocation models, uh, we are leaning toward the emerging markets over the the developed markets, and that's uh, partly a valuation story, partly a view that uh, um, you know economic activity is dangerously close to recession in key developed markets like Europe and Japan, 
and, and just a belief that while there's obvious volatility in the emerging markets, we, we particularly like the, the Asian emerging markets, which we think have really strong secular growth trends. But, uh, you know, in markets like this, that in the short term, it's going to be a bumpy ride. We're talking with Dave Donabedian, the Chief Investment Officer of CIBC Private Wealth Management, who oversees their asset allocation team and and uh, outlooks there. Uh, it's interesting, you know. So over overweighting Asia and EM is that uh, you know a, a view also on China that China drives a lot of this Asian growth, and you know, they've been slowing down. But then you know their their equity markets have certainly you know been under pressure last year, although it came out. Uh, pretty strong to start this year before the you know the the, the tensions really ratchet up. How, how much is is China a part of that worldview? Uh, it, it's definitely a part of it. It's obvious, you know, it's the, the eight hundred pound gorilla, obviously, of the Asian economies and markets, and second largest economy in the world. So you're absolutely right. The economic data there has slowed uh, pretty appreciably, um, and obviously there is the risk of the the, the trade dispute. And um, I would still say that the, the trade issue is probably going to get get worse before it gets better. So those are some of the, the the cautionary notes on China. The other side of it, though, is China has some pretty significant policy tools that they can implement. Frankly, more than than most other uh, countries have. Right? They have more room in which they can drop interest rates, and and they are very likely uh, to do that. They also have more fiscal stimulus tools. In which to kind of kind of prop up the economy, and and they're putting those to use. I mean, a year ago, the big economic trend in China was toward reform, and and government clearly stated we're focused on reform, not maximum growth. They've essentially thrown that out the window at this point, and it is all about sustaining the the growth rate of the economy, and and it appears they they mostly have the tools um, to do that. So that that's kind of the, the the cyclical part of it. The secular part of it is. Um, you know, this is a a, a strong economy and uh, one that, uh, you know, global investors should have a stake in. Um, you know, I don't know if you, you've been following another one of the big markets from a population perspective. You know, this year, uh, India has been really one of the laggards for emerging markets. But today on this big down day across the world, actually, a lot of the Indian uh, markets are up a, a considerable amount today on some some sort of recent news out of India. Any any thoughts on uh, in in your emerging markets tilts? Do, do you guys look at India? Absolutely, yeah. That that's part of the you know I'll call it the the, the case for Asia. And um, you know, um, Prime Minister Modi is a very controversial leader, um, but there is a commitment to economic reform, which is you know has been needed in the Indian economy for. A long time. It kind of happens in in fits and starts, but but it is happening. Uh, they also have more uh, central bank flexibility in this environment as well. And and you know, from a demographic standpoint, if you're really thinking long term, which is how equity investors should think, um, you you could argue there's a better demographic story uh, for Indian economic growth and equity market uh, appreciation relative to to China. So we're uh, long-term favorable there. Yeah, that's one of the more interesting long-term growth stories. Certainly one of the biggest, fastest growth rates for sort of larger economies. Uh, it could be one interesting one to watch. Um, now, in, when you think about what's the, you made the comments that Europe, Japan seem to be recessionary, you know, triggers that valuations are attractive in, in, in the emerging markets. How much in Europe do you think it's 
you know, driven by what's actually going on in China, that, you know, some of this global manufacturing weakness is, you know, Germany being the big export machine and 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 really run from that export side that China slowing down is is really the same side of, of what's causing troubles in Europe. Uh, there, there's a definite link there. Absolutely. I mean, the German economy is is much more um sensitive to China trade issues than, than the U.S. economy is, and they're, and they're, absolutely, uh, they're absolutely feeling the pain. But the other thing going on there is you've had you know, very tight fiscal policy, and um, you know, it wasn't terribly comforting when the, the German finance minister the other day came out and said, you know, if there's a crisis, we'll employ fiscal tools. Uh, I think most people would want to hear that they might want to try and get ahead of the crisis. So that that was a little disappointing. Um, they continue to be focused on on running budget surpluses, um, as opposed to maybe trying to um, stimulate the economy. And the other concern is is the ECB. Now the ECB in September is almost for sure going to come forward with more easing policies, driving rates more into negative territory variants of what you know we've come to call here quantitative easing um, but it, it looks a lot like that that's kind of pushing on a string and, and so we really don't have very high hopes for um, um, for most European economies and then if you throw uh, you know the UK into the mix you know if you go back to the, the brexit referendum three years ago point to point I would say that the British economy has held up remarkably well but really just in the last two months it's begun to, to crater begun to crater. If you look at the most recent retail sales data, I mean, it, it just plummeted in, in early August back to levels where it was at, uh, you know, really during, during the recession. So that's another, uh, you know, flashing red light in Europe. Well, you're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. We're talking to Dave Donabedian, the Chief Investment Officer of CIBC Private Wealth Management. Um, and so, Dave, you know, one of the interesting, you know, asset classes this year, it's been a big rally generally, besides for the volatility today in equities, big rally in bonds, uh, a big rally in gold uh, is like one of these other, you know, volatility reducing safe havens that people are flocking to. How do you think about the non-equities, non-bonds as part of your asset allocation? Where do you, do you guys use alternatives? How do you think about that? We, we do use alternatives. Um you know, commodities generally are are in the mix for our uh, asset allocation consideration, as well as uh, hedge strategies, as and as well as you know private private equity and venture capital. So we, we kind of look at the uh, at the full array. Uh, we've we've focused a bit on um, com- recently on, on on commodities and whether it's time to establish a sort of a formal recommendation uh, there. We've been out of commodities for for a number of years, which has been 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 the right call. Um, we haven't pulled the trigger there yet. Just feeling that um, you know most of the again the, the global economic signs are toward uh, weaker demand, not stronger, um, and the dollar has also been um, you know stronger than certainly stronger than, than I expected. And there's a definite inverse relationship there. Um, so commodities in general, I think, are are getting interesting as we see. Central banks go back to extraordinary monetary accommodation, but it's probably a little early. Gold exclusively, obviously, is is, is a little bit different. And you know, the rally in gold really started when it was clear that the the Fed was going to move back toward um, a rate cutting environment, and has just accelerated here as um, as we go into you know the the era of uh, tens of, of trillions of dollars of negative yielding bonds. One of the you know one of the arguments against gold traditionally has been 
you don't earn anything on it. In fact, there's some some carrying cost. Um, but when you know uh, bond investors have to have to pay for the privilege to own bonds, that cost of carry issue becomes a little less uh, of a negative um, with gold. But but our alternative space now, um, you know, we we actually think that the, the private markets are, are really interesting here. Um, what we're seeing, and, and this is not about a, you know what's going to happen in the next year call. This is about the, the longer-term future of, of the financial markets. It's very clear that American companies in particular are staying private for longer. So more of the, the, the value capture of a company's life cycle is happening while they're private as opposed to when they're public. And so particularly for growth-oriented investors, uh, we encourage them to think about at least with a small part of their portfolio, accepting the kind of the illiquidity that comes with with private markets to potentially get exposure to uh, some of the really great, you know, high growth corporate stories. So venture capital, private equity, are, are you trying to get in earlier on that ground floor or sort of get more established? And, and how, how do you think about sizing that in, in portfolios for like, nope. you know, if, if you had a standard 60-40 where, you know, equity bond mix that a lot of people viewed, how do you think about that as part of their equity allocations? Sure. So if you, you know, if you were looking for, let's just call it, you know, 60% of a portfolio to be growth focused, 40% to be income and capital preservation focused, you know, I was depending on the investor, you know, five to 10% of that, of, of, of the, the 60, we would consider uh, applicable for, for private markets, again, for a growth oriented, um, growth oriented investor. And we want to have offerings really across all the areas that you mentioned buyout, although we tend to favor uh, small and mid-sized uh, buyout opportunities. Uh, we, we think that these, you know, mega buyout funds are not really the way to go. They're, they're, um, you know, too, too many, too much money chasing too few good deals. So we focus on the, the small and mid-market buyout. Uh, venture is is interesting, but like anything else, uh, you really need to be with the right manager. And then, you know, in between that is the the, the growth equity space, right? The, the little bit beyond the life cycle of the typical venture investment, but companies that have begun to show their stripes but need additional capital to accelerate their growth. We think that's a very interesting kind of middle ground in the in the private markets. And with bonds yielding next to nothing on, on the tip side um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and ultimately low rates on the tenure, like what do you guys think about how do you position bonds with preservation of capital? Like where, where, do, you, where do you hide out today? Yeah, I mean that's it. It's it's um, especially in this sort of environment where the the overhanging question is: Are we headed for recession or not? You can be be pretty confident that you're going to see, you know, a, a contra relationship in in stocks versus bonds. And so, high quality fixed income will work as a a diversifier relative to uh, rel- relative to the equity markets. Um, that isn't always the case, but it's it's the case today, and, and probably will be at least in in the near future. So that's a you know it's a place to hide for the reasons that you mentioned. That doesn't mean it's good value as as something to own over the next you know three four or five years. Uh, I mean you can if you try and forecast total bond returns, say on on the ten year treasury. Um, I mean it's very hard to come up with a number other than something in the you know the low. Um, Low single digits, either either positive or, or, or negative. Uh, yeah. That's why our again our, our baseline is still 
despite the fact that we have to, you know, gut it out on volatile days, that, that equities still represent better value. Yeah, I mean, it, we, Siegel talks all the time about how that equity risk premium, you know, the earnings yield versus the tips yield at zero, and now it's actually negative three basis points as I look at the, the screen right now, it, versus, you know, they even call it a, a, an aggressive 20 PE, which is a little bit lower than that, so a 5% earnings yield versus zero tips yield at this high equity premium. And, uh, but, you know, it's it's interesting, you know, when, when, when where we, you know, a few you haven't had a market that was caused where the equities went down because bond yields were spiking and bond returns were negative. But that was, you know, you did have some of that volatility early last year. Uh, it'll right. be interesting if that is the cause of the next big, bigger sell-off is will we get some kind of inflation scare, yields rise, equities fall, and you lose that diversification. Well, right. And that's, you know, you, you think about the, we're talking about the Fed and trade, all these things that are, are, are right there in the headlines and, and they're important but a lot of times you have to think about what's what's not on the headlines, what is not on people's radar screens, that that were it to to happen would would be a surprise. And and to your point, a um, you know a rising inflation trend would certainly be that. Um, yep. Very good. Uh, any closing thoughts as you think about, uh, or, or you want to help position CIBC private wealth, the types of uh, people who should reach out and and look for you guys as a as a wealth management provider, what, who, who, who should be, be thinking about CIBC? Well, I think for, um, for, for investors who are looking first for, for sort of holistic wealth planning advice as well as investment advice, I think we, we do a super job there. On the investment side, for investors who are uh, long-term focused, uh, who believe in globally diversified portfolios across multiple asset classes, um, and um, an environment where the, the investment team pays a lot of attention to, to risk as well as reward. I think that's a, uh, that, that's a good fit for us. Very good, Dave. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for joining us on this uh, very action-packed uh, newsy Friday here. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. We've been talking with Dave Donabedian, the Chief Investment Officer of CIBC Private Wealth Management. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 